Welcome, everyone. And uh, we're very happy to be back with you to talk more about the Constitution. Stratty, how's it been, man? I'm feeling great mentally, not feeling too great physically, but happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, I woke up this morning and uh, and I felt really, really, uh, really tired, but got a little food in me, walked around a little bit, and uh, I'm feeling pretty sharp right now, so I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, man, I just hung out side of, outside in the sun for like 20 minutes, and that woke me up and did everything I need, so... Yeah, I'm ready, ready to go. <laughs> Sunshine helps for sure. Uh, I want to get back to the Constitution and basically pick up where we left off last time. We were talking about the Commerce Clause. We went over about 100 years of Commerce Clause history. We talked about some important cases and how uh, the Supreme Court has incorrectly interpreted the Constitution and the Commerce Clause in order to grow the regulatory power of the federal government over the economy. Um, and now that we kind of understand that, I want to shift a little bit to a different uh, legal issue, but it's still kind of tied in with it. And, and it's interesting because even though, um, and we're going to talk about Lochner, which I mentioned before, and Lochner was a 14th Amendment case. And so the 14th Amendment is obviously not the same as the as the Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause is in the uh, Article One for the for the legislature, and uh, the Fourteenth Amendment is is obviously not a part of that. So they're different substantive areas of law, uh, but I still think that the the different areas of law still kind of set a tone for other areas of law, right? And and with Lochner because it's such an important case about how economic regulations play out in the relationship between the federal government and the state governments, um, it still is really informative on how the government treats economic regulations and what kind of standards they hold regulations up to. Um, and so even though the Commerce Clause is about the federal government regulating uh, the economy and the, the 14th Amendment um, in Lochner, the court says that the 14th Amendment creates a check on the state's abilities to regulate um, uh, freedom of contract under the uh, um, under the 14th Amendment, there's still important issues coming in to the, the way that the government approaches economic regulations, and it kind of sets a tone. And I think my argument, which I'll get into, is I think that after Lochner was overturned, this kind of opened up a door to a much lower standard of review for Commerce Clause regulations because um, the government was becoming much more open to economic regulations in general. And so even though the overturning of Lochner allowed the state's police powers to increase control over freedom of contract, that still set an anti-free market tone, which allowed for even more growth of the Commerce Clause later on down the line. So even though they're different substantive areas of law, they're interrelated and, and they, they play into each other and how the government views the economy. Um, so, yeah, the Commerce Clause over those first hundred years has increasingly been growing. And then in the early early 20th century in 1905 there was a there was a case that came before the Supreme Court called Lochner versus New York. And in this case New York made a law which um, basically was a uh, uh, was a limit on hours of work. The 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 
litigant in the case was a baker, um, and and uh, he argued that that he had the right to hire people, and they voluntarily chose to work however many hours. And the state of New York was saying, "No, you cannot work this many hours. Um, we're not going to allow you to have that freedom of contract to choose your hours." Um, so the state of New York was trying to was trying to. Uh, clamped down on this, and it was invoking its police powers for you know to protect the health of workers or you know whatever crap they're 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 saying, and uh, and so the the case came before the Supreme Court, and the question was, um, does is there a limit on the state's police power by the Fourteenth Amendment? Because the Fourteenth Amendment, which was passed after the Civil War, has this due process clause in it, right? that says that liberty cannot be taken away by any of the states without due process of law. And this due process clause of the 14th Amendment is the basis of substantive due process, which is this idea that there are fundamental liberties enshrined in the 14th Amendment that cannot be violated by the states, right? So this is a 14th, this is a federal constitution check on the police power of of uh, of the states individually, and in Lochner they were considering is freedom of contract one of these fundamental liberties that is protected by the due process clause um, against the state's police powers. And in Lochner the court said yes, the majority of the court said that freedom of contract is a fundamental right, a fundamental liberty which is protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. And they set up a standard, uh, a two-part standard, a test, where basically they, they said the first part is that the, uh, the regulation of freedom of contract must serve some goal of public health or the health of the contracting party. So that's the first thing that, the, that it has to meet. The regulation by the state has to serve some goal of public health or health of the contracting party and second, it must actually serve the public good, right? And so this is kind of a high standard that the government is setting. The government is saying, hey, look, if you're actually going to regulate this stuff, then we're not just going to blindly defer to you, right? We're going to say that freedom of contract is a fundamental right, and therefore, because it's so fundamental, if you're going to restrict it, you need to be able to prove that what you're doing is actually beneficial, because if it's not actually beneficial for the health of the public or the health of the contracting parties, if you can't actually prove that, then you're violating this fundamental right without sufficient uh, reason, right? And it would just be arbitrary at that point if you're saying, well, we think it's going to do this, but it's not actually provably doing it, right? The, the court is going to say, hey, look, you know, we're going to check you on this because this is so fundamental. We have to protect it, and we're going to create this high burden of proof for you. I, I think this is all very, very good, very, very correct. Um, is very, 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 very strong. I, I love the outcome. And, and I will say that it's interesting because Randy Barnett has opined on this in some of his work. And he said that he agrees with the conclusion, but he thinks that the court took the wrong legal route to get to it. Now, what Barnett says is that he doesn't think it should have been the due process clause that did this, but he thinks it should have been the privileges and immunities clause, uh, which would have protected this this right to freedom of contract. Um, so basically, you know, it's just an interesting point uh, of how uh, of how in some cases, you know, you can come to the same legal conclusion 
by a different legal route, and this is what leads to a lot of concurrences in certain kind of cases where the concurring justice will say, well, I agree with the outcome, but I don't agree with the legal reasoning that got the, the majority to that outcome. Uh, so it's just an interesting kind of uh, issue of, of, of the different kind of clauses coming in here and what was the proper legal route to get to this outcome. Uh, but I think ultimately it was the correct outcome. And if I had been on the court, I either would have been with the majority or been in the concurrence. Um, but yeah, in, uh, they said that interference with freedom of contract by state by states uh, through the police power must be reasonable, necessary, and non-arbitrary. And the natural effect of some legislation is more important to the issue of constitutionality than is the stated purpose of the law. So this is all music to my ears because, you know, we've been talking about how the courts have abdicated their role. They just defer to the legislature. They defer to administrative agencies. They don't really do anything to actually make sure that regulations of the economy are actually non-arbitrary. They just say, you know, and we're going to get to this in the cases after Lochner, which which have allowed for this more to occur. But I think it's important to note that, you know, Lochner was setting up this high burden that the states have to meet if they're going to regulate freedom of contract. And that's been thrown out of the window after Lochner w was overturned. And it's just really, really sad that uh, that these courts have no interest these days, basically, in actually making sure that the government isn't arbitrarily using its powers. I mean, I really don't think it's that much to ask for the government to go into court and say, hey, this regulation isn't arbitrary because it's actually, you know, we actually have decent enough evidence to show that even if we can't show that it's for sure doing what we want it to do, it's very likely that it's that it's doing what it's what we want it to do. And I really don't think that's too much to ask, especially when we're talking about something so fundamental about freedom of contract. I mean, for God's sake, I mean, the entire idea and this this ties into two. See, I'm going up. OK, I'm going on my rant here because this is very cathartic for me, because I remember the first time I read Lochner and I loved it so much. And my con law professor was like, so just shooting it down and everything. So, so I just have so many thoughts on this, but in the Declaration of Independent, Independence, Thomas Jefferson is the consent of the governed, right? That's, that's the basis of, of our ideals of government, is the consent of the governed, and the consent is contract. And so if the entire idea of our government in the first place is supposed to be consent of the governed, consent, contract, then why is freedom of contract suddenly not so important, right? And so there's just this 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 horrible inconsistency that's just going against the foundations of our of our of our idea of government and, and the ideals of, of this of this republic. I mean, it's very very is very very disturbing how how freedom of contract has just been been just been thrown into the dustbin of history by the courts and the legislatures. Uh, so I believe Lochner is correct, uh, rightly decided at least in its outcome. Uh, freedom of contract is clearly a fundamental right. We just see that from history. We see that from the Declaration of Independence, the very ideas that our government is based off of. Uh, and also, it's it's just in line with logic, economics, human nature. I mean, you, you and I agree that economics being about human action is something very important to understanding law because law is all about human beings acting with each other. So, um, so... That's very important, and obviously, you know, we've talked about argumentation ethics and estoppel and the the basis of law, what law is, 
And the whole basis of what law is is self-ownership, and self-ownership implies freedom of contract. So to say that freedom of contract is not fundamental to any legal system is just absolute you know, hogwash. It's, it's ridiculous. So why was Lochner so criticized? What did people not like about it? Well, first of all, obviously there was just some anti-market bias. Um, which was seeping its way into the courts under this uh, 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 legalese, um, you know, the, the shroud of, of legal doctrines and legalese uh, that just hides the, the horrible uh, contradictions that, that, that uh, you know, going against freedom of contract entails. But one of the things that Lochner's critics really go on is they say that the court was acting as a policymaker. And this is something we talked about a lot in our last few episodes. We were talking about the Constitution. What's the role of the courts in the federal system? What's, what are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to interpret the Constitution? Because they're not a common law court, right? So the argument against Lochner was that the court was putting in place a policy of laissez-faire and that this was not within the court's authority to do so, right? Yeah, like I wanted to read— um... Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr.'s dissent. Yeah, yeah. Um, he accused the majority of judicial activism and claimed the case to have been decided, these are his words, decided upon an economic theory which a large part of the country does not entertain, close quotes. He did not agree that the 14th Amendment enshrined liberty of contract and cited laws against Sunday trading and usury as, quote unquote, ancient examples to the contrary. Now these are his words again. The 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's Social Statics, which was a, you know, a laissez-faire philosophy type book. Um, but he, Holmes emphasized that a constitution is not intended to embody a, a particular economic theory. Um, so on that real quick, I, you know, I agree. I don't think a government, I mean, me and you, I think would both totally agree with the idea of a separation of economy and state. Obviously, that's not what he's getting at in his dissent. He's not saying like, hey, the government shouldn't have any kind of uh, say in what, you know, the economy of what people, the econ the type of economy that people participate in. Clearly, that's not what he's saying because he cited ancient laws like Sunday trading and usury. And then we go to John Marshall Harlan's dissent where he uh, contends that liberty to contract is subject to regulation imposed by a state acting within the scope of its police powers. So, um, yeah, you bring up the anti-market bias, and this is right as the progressive era is really, really fixing to kind of peak. Um, and I, I, you know, like, I, I don't know much about these cases, but to just talking about that today, that really stuck out to me. So this, for that reason alone, to me, to, for that reason alone, this makes uh, Lochner a landmark case to me because it really kind of uh, is the epitome of when all economic liberties were taken away, when it was overturned, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A absolutely. And, and you know, I I'm glad you brought up, um, I'm glad you brought up uh, Holmes um, because I w I, we've said this before. I, so... I, I, I love how um, Michael Malice always calls um, what was it the National Review guy Buckley? Yeah, he always calls Buckley the great villain, and so I've kind of I, I've always loved that term. And it, people who have listened to our last few episodes, I've referred to Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. 
as the great villain. Uh, and uh, and we're definitely hoping to get more into uh, into him at some point. I'd love to do a, a, an episode on his life and his judicial philosophy and his career um, because it's uh, a very positivist and very uh, faulty. Uh, but yeah, uh, his descent ended up becoming the uh, the view that that ended up overturning Lochner and coming into place. And now, uh, I mean, I understand his point bringing up the the ancient laws and other things like that. Uh, but also at the same time, it it's, it kind of ties into some of the things we talked about with uh, with uh, like the Declaration of Independence. It's like okay, you have these laws or these documents from the past. And so it's kind of like, which one are you supposed to look to, right? Are you supposed to look to the Declaration of Independence that says that consent of the governed and freedom of contract is fundamental to our entire idea of government? Or are you going to look back on, you know, these other kind of laws? Um, and uh, I, I'll, I'll ask you, because you have the quote in front of you, um, what when were those laws that he was were those American laws from like the 1800s or did they even go back like farther to pre-American uh, states or whatever? So Sunday trading, let's see. It, yeah, Sunday trading is like a religious thing. It goes back to the ability of retailers to operate stores on Sunday, a day that Christian tradition typically recognizes as a day of rest. Rules governing shopping hours, such as Sunday shopping, vary around the world, but some countries... In... So, I mean, basically, he went against... I mean, was he going against the church and state when he cited that? I'm not... I don't know. That's just odd to me. But then, like, let's look at usury. These are ancient examples. And yeah, usury just you know obviously. Well, yeah, usury goes from, back. Yeah. Usury goes back a long, long time, and that was even that was even tied up too. I think with, unless I'm mistaken, my unless I'm forgetting my history, I think usury laws were tied up with the church too, right? Because I think it was like the 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 canon law, which was very yeah, against usury back in the you day. You were right. You were right. Through the Roman Empire eventually allowed, though the Roman Empire eventually allowed loans with carefully restricted interest rates, the Catholic Church in medieval Europe, as well as the Reformed churches, regarded the changing of interest at any rate as sinful. Uh, religious prohibitions on usury are predicated upon the belief that charging interest on a loan is sin. Got you. Yeah, but, but it's, I love the point you just brought up. It's like, okay... Well, obviously our system isn't the same as those past systems. So it's, yeah. you know, looking at history, it's important, but it's not conclusive, right? And also have to understand that at those times when those laws were being put into place, there was no First Amendment protection, right? There was no separation of church and state, uh, 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 the Establishment Clause and everything. And so I think that those, those, those religiously-based Sunday laws or, or those... Uh, or those usury uh, laws based on uh, the views of sinfulness and, and, and the church, those might even be uh, violations of the First Amendment if they were to be implemented by uh, the federal government or the states today. Yeah. So it's, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting kind of argument, but I think that, I, I think that it's obviously just, uh, I think it's just him putting in his, his uh, progressive bias, um, to, you know, trying to nitpick historical examples 
um, and and uh, brushing under the table other more important historical examples that are more recent and more relevant to the United States system, such as the Declaration of Independence. Um, I definitely need to go back and reread that dissent. Uh, maybe some of my criticisms are, you know, maybe he handles them in some other places. Um, but from what you've said to me, that's just what comes to my mind of, of uh, the kind of flaws that might be that might be playing out in his dissent. Uh, but yeah, so the argument against Lochner is that it's it's putting in place a policy position that the courts are not in a right place to to do. And also, uh, I will say too that one of the other one of the other things that Lochner was criticized on was that test I laid out. So there was that two part test um, where the first part was uh, I'll, I'll reread it again. First, uh, the regulation must serve some goal of the public health or health of the contracting party, and second, regulation must actually serve the public good. So the critics of Lochner look at that second part of that test and they'll say, well, it, uh, you know, requiring that the regulation or the intervention actually serves the legitimate purpose or the, or, or the, or the, or the public interest, uh, they say that the, let me see here, yeah, so they focus on this and basically say that this is too high of a burden for us to be imposing, right? So it's like partly the government is the 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 court is making policy decisions that they shouldn't be, and then also it's kind of tied into how they're they're putting too high of a standard for the government to meet in order to do these kind of police power regulations. So it's kind of these this these two sides of this coin, right? Uh, they say that the 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 policy uh, implementation is unfounded, and then the standard based on that policy implementation is as well uh, not correct. That's what the critics of Lochner will say. They hold that this element of the test puts the court unduly in a position to make policy, displacing the legislature from uh, and and thereby legislating from from the court's bench. Uh, so, my answer to this is that uh, I agree that the Supreme Court and the federal courts underneath the federal system as it stands uh, shouldn't be uh, the policymakers when they're not acting within their limited common law jurisdiction. Now, the Supreme Court of the United States does have some common law, basically over maritime matters, so, you know, over uh, waters in the sea. There's some maritime common law jurisdiction original jurisdiction in the Supreme Court. But other than that, it's all appellate jurisdiction for the most part and it's uh and there's no common law there. So it's it's there's no policy role there for the court to play. They're just as we've said before, they're interpreting statutes against the constitution by judicial review and the policy is punted to the legislature. And I agree generally that, you know, the the Supreme Court underneath the system shouldn't be the policymakers. Uh but Lochner isn't doing this, I don't think. I don't think that Lochner is unduly putting in policy, uh, uh, economic policies that aren't founded on, like we said before, the fundamental right to freedom of contract. Because if the freedom of contract wasn't viewed as a fundamental right, then it would be just a policy choice, right? Because the freedom of contract would just be something that the, the policymaker, the legislature could choose to put in one way or the other. Uh, you know, but because it's so fundamental, 
as we talked about in the Declaration of Independence, the entire idea of the government in the first place was that there's this idea of this freedom of contract. And, and so it's not some kind of policy decision that the court is just pulling out of its rear end. I mean, it's something established that the court didn't set up that's already there, and they're just they're just protecting it. They're just enforcing it. That wasn't their decision, right? And so, yeah, I, I think that freedom of contract is absolutely a fundamental, provable right at the basis of the American system. And the justices might not agree with it, but if it's established, then they go with it. So, yeah, I agree so with if, you. Yeah, so like if, if all of the courts on Lochner, if all of the judges on the Lochner court didn't agree with the freedom of contract or they thought that this law should have been implemented, they would have had to say, we're not policymakers. We, we can't judge on this law based on because we think it's good policy because a freedom of contract is fundamental. That's like the opposite of making a policy choice, right? Yeah, I mean, and you put it perfectly with what you just said there. But I mean, my whole thinking about this is, you know, the only role of government, um, which uh, they never succeeded because they always like to grow past uh, the limits the people should put on them. But uh, the only role of government is to protect people. It's to protect our rights. It's to make sure we're not aggressed upon. Um, so from what you just said to me, yeah, the, I think that's what, I mean, what, yeah, what you just said is really perfect because it exemplifies the fact that they're not really, uh, if they're, I keep getting to where they overturned it and I, I know I'm going a little too fast, but I'm just in my head, I'm thinking like already government is not serving its purpose that people want it to. Why should we have it? I mean, I'm sorry. That's just where my head's going when they're taking. But the regulation, the regulation is violence, right? Yeah. So, so you know, the government is supposed to protect people's rights, but then it's saying that no, we're not going to protect this freedom of contract right because yeah. because of we want to allow policy decisions to come in, and so it's like, so you know, even if the court, if the court were to rule the other way, right? and say, hey, we're not policymakers, we're not going to implement laissez-faire, whatever, if they would have ruled the other way, well, then the court is saying that this fundamental right, even if we're not the ones to make the policy, the legislature has to be the one to make the policy. So ultimately, you're still giving away a fundamental right to a policy decision, even if you're not the one making it. So I think that even on its own terms, the people who are arguing that Lochner should be overturned because of the policy thing, well, then you're just pushing it one step down the road. You're just pushing that policy to the legislature. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know, the legislature is a policymaker with the representatives, yada, yada. Okay, fine, whatever. But ultimately, the question is, is this a fundamental right? Because if it's not a fundamental right, then either the court will set the policy or the legislature will set the policy. And if it's not a fundamental right, then sure, the legislature set the policy, whatever. But if it is a fundamental right, then nobody is to set the policy unless the Constitution gets amended. So, yeah, I think it's uh, I think no matter what the policy, the policy crap in in terms of 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 affecting a fundamental right is going to be there. And so I would much rather uh, much rather just have a, a government that protects rights and a court that says, no, this is a fundamental right that you're not going to get on, instead of either the court putting in policy, which it didn't in Lochner, it's just protecting a right, or 
have the legislature set the policy. And I mean, we see this all the time with, with substantive due process, and we'll get to this. Abortion, gay marriage, privacy, all this stuff. They'll say these are fundamental rights which the legislature cannot have policy over, right? But can't you kind of see how when the government picks which ones it likes and which ones are fundamental, right? It, it, they're kind of setting a policy of what can be a, have policy differences and what can't because that's almost a policy difference in itself, right? Like what can have the legislature affected or not? That's kind of a policy interest too. So I think I, I think you can you can slice this up in a million different ways, and every single time the anti-Lochner view f either contradicts itself, falls into the same follies that it's that it's that it says it's going against just because of the narrowness of its view. Um, I, I think it's really uh, really sad that 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 um, this has happened, but you know it is what it is. But yeah. Um, secondly, uh, moving on beyond this to the to the standard, the the two part test. And I said this before, I mean, I really don't think it's that much to ask for the government to actually prove that when it's uh, when it's uh, affecting a fundamental right, that it actually can show that what it's doing is an arbitrary. That's what it's doing is actually doing the things that it wants it to do, is actually reaching the goals that it wants it to reach, right? Because if it's not, then you're just curtailing this right without anything to show for it. And that's the whole point of having the fundamental rights. And this court does this, too, with strict scrutiny, right? They'll say that you have to, first of all, have a compelling government interest. And then second of all, you have to show that the law is narrowly tailored. Now, this standard is a little bit lower than the Lochner standard, right? Because the first one is kind of the same, right? The first part, compelling government interest for the public health, public safety, whatever. So that's basically the same between the Lochner standard and the strict scrutiny. Second part of the test is a little bit different because Lochner says that you actually have to prove that what you're doing is doing what you want it to do, whereas the strict scrutiny says it has to be narrowly, narrowly tailored. So it's not necessarily saying that you actually have to fully prove that, that the law or whatever that you passed is doing what you want it to do, but it has to be sufficiently focused, sufficiently narrowly tailored, right? It has to be very, very focused on this specific goal, and it has to not be broader than what's absolutely necessary to effectuate that goal. And this is strict scrutiny is used with with racial classifications, right? So if the government makes a law where it classifies people differently based on race, then it has to say compelling government interest, and then secondly, that it's narrowly tailored so that the way we classify people based on race was not too broad in order to reach the goal. So it's you don't actually have to prove that you're reaching the goal, but it has you have to prove that you sufficiently, you know, circumscribed yourself so that you're not going too far afield and arbitrarily um regulating other things. So so I mean, I, I just think that I really don't think it's too much to ask for the government to actually prove that what they're doing is actually <laughs> effective, especially when we're talking about a fundamental right. Um and you know, I don't think that the courts are in a position to, uh, to I, I don't think that the courts are not in a position to do this. This is another thing that people will bring up. It's like, well, you know, the, the legislature has the facts. They have the research. You know, they have the ability 
to make these policy decisions because they have the resources to do the research, to do the research and to get the stats and to figure out how different things are going to be affected and what the actual facts of things are. And then the court is just left with the cases that come before it. And then the parties put in their evidence. Um, but I think if the, if the Congress, if the government is really that good at figuring out the facts, at finding problems, and then putting in a law that, that is supposed to fix it, then I really don't think it's too much to ask for them to leverage those resources to make those determinations in order to prove it to a court who's independent. Hey, this is actually something that's, that's actually helping what, with what we said. At the, I mean, it's just like, again, this contradiction here where they say, oh, the, the, the legislature can do this research and they can make these decisions, but then we're not going to require them to prove it, you know? <laughs> And it's just what you're saying is just a reasonable point of view, even without all the technical stuff and all the, you know, even someone without all of the knowledge of law and how legislation works, even they can take the view that you're having because it's a common sense view because literally what the government does affects us all. So why shouldn't they prove that they can at least be effective in a positive manner if they're going to be affecting us all? I don't think you even have to graduate the first grade to be able to get why that's a common sense belief we should all come to. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's necessary to the idea of consent of the governed. I mean, it's like if you don't know that what your government is actually doing, they have a reason for it. And if you don't know that what they're doing is actually, you know, effectuating the policies that you ostensibly want your representatives to put into place, then how the heck are you supposed to vote? How the heck are we supposed to have democracy? How the heck are we supposed to know whether or not we're getting the policy we want from our representatives? It's just, it's just horse crap. It's just all just give the power to the legislature and let them go hog wild. And the court does nothing to stop them when it comes to economic regulations. And uh, yeah, I think it's all just a, it's, it's a result of statism and in particular the progressive movement. It's very, very dangerous. Um, so yeah, in Lochner, the court did not circumscribe what goals the legislature could go for. It didn't say that you can't have a policy to try to reduce the amount of hours worked in bakeries. It just said you can't do it by impairing people's freedom of contract. But it's not saying that you don't have the right to put in some law to try to effectuate that policy. You can put in any policy you damn well please, just as long as you don't infringe on a fundamental right. And this is just this is exactly what substantive due process does today, just with more specific rights, less broad rights less universal rights. And that's really a huge hypocrisy of the substantive due process jurisprudence because it because it's saying, oh, well, with abortion, sure, you can have a policy to try to reduce abortions, but you can't do it by outlawing abortion. Well, Lochner is saying you can have a policy to reduce the hours worked in bakeries, but you can't do it by infringing freedom of contract. You can't do it by outlawing that work directly. So there's nothing going on here that the court is not already doing today, but in a less principled manner by just picking and choosing which rights it wants instead of having the broad freedom of contract right, which would include all the other rights. 
If you had a freedom of contract, want to go get an abortion? It's freedom of contract. Freedom of contract. If you want to get have a gay marriage, freedom of contract. That, that's what Lochner would have protected. It, it all would have been in there. Lochner could have been the basis for all these protections that future substantive due process could have protected. But we also could have protected the market, too. But we didn't. So what you're saying is this was like a huge missed opportunity for real prosperity and peace to come about in America just through our courts alone. Absolutely. I would say that overturning Lochner and the court's current substantive due process jurisprudence is an unmitigated failure, not only for the contradictions and, and, the, and the, the legal problems I, uh, I, I mentioned before, uh, but also because of the culture wars. I mean, if we just had a general freedom of contract, then— The culture wars really wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be there, yeah. even if even if abortion were 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 allowed, even if gay marriage were allowed. If we had the freedom of contract to live and left live and freedom of association, who would care? You wouldn't care. But the way substantive due process is going on now is it's just picking and choosing, and then it says, oh, you know, you have to force this down everybody's throats instead of just allowing a blanket freedom of association, and that's what leads to these culture war problems, and it, it destroys federalism. It destroys the ability for different states to have different policies. It destroys the abilities for people to go to different states and to get jobs that they want and to, and to set up their affairs and to have the efficiency of the free market. The uh, Yeah, overturning Lochner was uh, – and this is why I wanted to talk about it so much is because it's just like this was – I think this was the nail in the coffin, overturning Lochner. This was the case that that could have saved us from so many – of of uh, of the destructions of our freedoms in, in the uh, in the 20th and now 21st centuries the the courts with the the change in substantive due process since Lochner uh, they killed the free market which was beginning with the commerce clause but Lochner was kind of the it set the tone for for the anti-free market uh bias the that nail in would, the coffin yeah exactly exactly and we'll get to the commerce clause cases that followed Lochner uh, and, and it's and it's overturning. Uh, but yeah, they killed the free market. They stripped people of freedom of contract, free association rights, which are the true rights, right? This is something Ron Paul has always talked about. There's no difference between civil rights and economic rights, right? To 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 set these two things up as different is is absurd, illogical. It goes against the entire idea of what law is, and, and therefore is uh, totally illegitimate. You know. Uh, the positive law on pieces of paper notwithstanding, of course. And it forced on us these conciliatory rights that that were just unnecessary because we could have just had the freedom of contract and the freedom of association that would have had all these other rights as a part of them, like I said before, abortion, gay marriage, etc. And this has fueled the political strife where people are voting over these things or, you know, the the or the the strife between the states and the federal government where the federal government is saying, hey, states, you can't vote on these things. Or, uh, or and the, the, uh, the, the culture wars between citizens, between liberals and conservatives. I mean, if liberals and conservatives have more freedom of contract and more freedom of association, they wouldn't care that the liberals and the conservatives are doing their own thing in other places. It wouldn't affect them as much. 
but because of the way it is now, it affects everybody. The Supreme Court says that you can't have rules against abortion in your own voluntary community. Well, you know, that's just going to lead to more conflict between people, you know, because in the culture wars, these things are so emotional. It's like, you know, to one person, it's a right to their body and to another person, it's murder. I mean, how can you, you know, you, you put these people in a situation where they have to fight over this within one political, one size fits all system instead of allowing these, uh, these differences of opinion to just filter out into, into free communities and free association and, and, uh, live and let live, uh, uh, as you've always said, indifferent coexistence. Yeah, Lochner would have allowed us indifferent coexistence, and it it was taken from us. I mean, Lochner would have allowed a plethora of things that would be beneficial to Americans. Um, and yeah, I mean, you you put it perfect there by uh, kind of you know uh, invoking Ron Paul. Uh, you know, there's no there's no such there's no such difference between civil liberties and your economic freedoms. Uh, you're you should have the freedom to any kind of economic association you want, just as you can have the you know, you should have the freedom to any kind of uh, relationship type uh, association you want. That, that, so, I mean, in my head, I've been reading this book this last week and there's a part in there where the author, he talks about how, uh, you know, in order for a good society to be moral and last, we need to have objective morality. Well, I really disagreed with that, but I can see why he believes that because of the kind of state we're in. Uh, if we had Lochner, we wouldn't. He probably wouldn't believe that because we would be able to have a sort of po- polycentric morality that differs from community to community because of just property rights alone. Um, Damn, you got me wanting to read more on Lochner. You got me wanting to kind of learn more about it so I can uh, push it more into my own writings. So thank you for that. But uh, how about you keep going on? Keep on keeping on with this because yeah. you're doing pretty good today. I'm on a roll today. Like I said before, this was this has been very cathartic for me to get all this off of my chest. Yeah, I could tell uh, you're going off on this episode. <laughs> I know, man. Lochner, Lochner has been on my mind for like a good year at this point almost. Maybe more like a half a year. Half a year to a year. But uh, yeah, I've really had a fire under my butt to, to get all this out. So yeah, as I said before, the Supreme Court's uh, substantive due process jurisprudence since Lochner has just been an unmitigated disaster. It's just, it's it has fueled the culture wars. It's it is, it, and it, it plays into state propaganda, where the state puts itself out as a rights protector, when actually it's a rights violator, right? It's saying, oh, we're going to protect your privacy rights. Oh, we're going to protect your abortion rights. Oh, we're going to do this and this and this. But by singling those out, you're violating our freedom of contract rights. Yeah. So it's it's all just bogus. It, it's 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 ridiculous that that the government can can go around being the rights violating institution it is by definition, and 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 put itself out as a as a rights protecting institution. I mean, this is the great con that that so many people have 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 fallen into, and it's just you know, you know, it's like if the mob is in you is in your neighborhood. And the mob extorts you for protection money, but then it protects you, right? Well, yeah, they protected you, but they only protected you because they threatened you, right? 
So it's just, it's 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 all a load of nonsense. The state is just a, it's a mafia gang that that puts itself off as a rights protection gang, and substantive due process is a big uh, propagandistic arm of of this entire uh, of this entire nightmare. So uh, let's see here. Yeah, so uh, I, I want to make a point that um, the political process that we've talked about a lot with the appointment of judges and 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 the confirmation process and everything, this political process has pushed into place judges uh, who will just allow the government to do uh, whatever the heck it wants with impunity. And I mean, we keep seeing this, and this has just been a theme that we've brought up, the abdication of the judicial responsibility to actually check um, the government to protect our rights. Uh, you know, they just, they don't do that. And it's, uh, it's absolutely uh, obscene what they do. Um, and the fact that, yeah, I think that the political aspects of the court, uh, nominations and, and the politics in general has, has led to, to led to the appointment of, of justices who they know are just going to let them do whatever they want. And, uh, it's really, it's really sad. Another point I'll bring up is that, you know, and this goes in before where, uh, I was talking about the standard of Lochner, the two-part test, and how it compared to the strict scrutiny two-part test. Um, you know, perhaps score, perhaps the Supreme Court could have relaxed the second element of the Lochner test. Maybe, you know, they just require a reasonable likelihood of achieving the government's goal rather than actual proof. Um, maybe they could have followed some kind of standard like that in cases where the law was new so the data isn't quite clear, but there was still a constitutional challenge. Uh, you know, maybe there could have been some adjustments here, but I think that that wouldn't require throwing out the entire Lochner framework uh, as such, um, the entire view of the fundamental uh, nature of freedom of contract and uh, the general two-part test, you know, whether it be full proof of, of the efficacy of the law or at least a reasonable likelihood of the efficacy of the law. I think the general framework uh, holds water no matter what, even if it could be slightly tweaked. And I mean, after all, you know, the courts have have at times um, uh, gone into make sure that the uh, state governments are actually putting into effect protected rights. And the example of this is the monitoring that the court took unto itself, the federal courts, uh, after Brown versus Board of Education, because in Brown one. The court held that the Equal Protection Clause uh, means that segregated schools, segregated public schools, are uh, violate the Constitution, violate the Equal Protection Clause. But then in Brown two, the court basically said that the the public schools have to effectuate the the desegregation with all deliberate speed. And this goes into busing and monitoring of, of schools that the federal courts did. And so they were basically saying, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to actually like look at what you're doing and say, hey, you're actually putting into effect the constitutional requirements, right? And so in Obergefell, Justice Kennedy said that the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, even though they're separate, they still have some overlap. 
And that's, you know, in Obergefell, that's why he ruled both on due process and equal protection in favor of gay marriage. There was some overlap between the two. And so my thought about this was just like, if you can monitor the states to make sure that they're actually enforcing your fundamental right, right, this, this, this equal protection right, if you're doing that in Brown, then why the heck couldn't we do that with Lochner? To actually make sure that the government is, is doing this, right? So, again, they're just contradicting themselves. They just, they won't do it when it's about the free market, but they will do it when it's about civil rights or whatever. And this allows them to say, oh, we're rights protectors, blah, 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 when the fundamental right of the market and freedom of contract is thrown out the window. It, it, it's a sham. It's a sham what they've done. It's also uh, the way they did it and the way they teach it in public schools really does a good job of ensuring that American school children don't know a damn thing about the free market, but think that uh, all these supposed rights matter because your government's protecting them. And oh boy, you know, there's just so much out there that um, this has led to um, a decaying of really in our society. And I mean, it, it's absolutely everything. I mean, if Lochner hadn't been overturned, I think we'd be in a much better position. And uh, we probably we probably wouldn't even have the economic downturns we've had because uh, I, I won't get into that. That's a thought I'll save for after recording. I'll talk to you about it. Well, I mean, this was the I mean, nineteen oh five. This was before the Fed. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It was like right before the Fed. Yeah, <laughs> I, so, I wasn't you know, sure. Federal Reserve, my Federal Reserve Act might have been held as a constitutional, violating the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, impairing freedom of contract in in currency. Yeah. So I mean, shit. Yeah. Lochner could have helped out a lot. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least. And I mean, not even to say. You know, I mean, the only reason the government can go to all these wars is because they can print money out of thin air. Yeah. So and that they can, and that the, and they can put debt on unborn people. So that's an impairment of freedom of contract as well. The way that the government can put debt on you in your name even before you're born. So they, they wouldn't be able to fund these wars if Lochner had, been over, had not been overturned. Uh, so, so not even just free market, not even just wealth, but direct lives would have been saved. I mean, seriously, or at least could have been. This is all counterfactual, of course. So, alas, my friend, Stratty, Lochner was overruled during the New Deal. This is the part I've been waiting for. <laughs> President Roosevelt threatened to pack the Supreme Court in order to stop New Deal legislation from being overruled. And uh, the uh, court was saying that the, the uh, legislature was... Uh, well, that Congress was overstepping its Commerce Clause powers. Now, remember, again, I want to make this clear just to be very clear about the differences of, of what I'm talking about here. The Commerce Clause is a power of government, the Congress, to regulate commerce. The 14th Amendment, substantive due process, is a restriction on states, right? So there's a difference there. Just want to make that all clear. But as I said before, I think Lochner set the tone for the shift in the Commerce Clause that occurred during the New Deal here. So Roosevelt threatened to pack the court 
in order to get more justices on there because the Supreme Court has its number of justices set by statute, by the legislature. The number of judges on the Supreme Court is not set to nine by the Constitution. It's set to nine by statute. So Roosevelt wanted to pack the court so that he could get more judges on that he could, that who, who would rule in his favor on his, uh, on his New Deal um, programs. And so this led to what was called the switch in time that saved nine, where Justice Roberts, who on the court, flipped. He had been going against uh, Roosevelt's New Deal legislation, but then in order to protect the n number of justices on the court, in order to keep it at nine, Justice Roberts flipped. And in a case called West Coast Hotel versus Parrish from 1937, let me pull it up here. Also for our listeners really quick, this is really relevant right now because it's not getting talked about enough. But uh, the Democrats have said things along the lines of that they plan on packing the courts if, elect if Biden is elected. Uh, just think about what kind of disastrous outcomes that could have for our country. Well, here's the thing, too, that you need to remember. The Democrats are always so good at changing history, right, teaching history in the wrong way. Roosevelt had a Democratic House and Senate. He had a Democratic Congress. And his own party did not want him to pack the court. He could not get the political support from his own party members to do this. So that's how much of a political taboo it was just 90 years ago, right? And now today the Democrats are throwing it out as if it's... The best thing ever. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's obviously not unconstitutional. I mean, if they pass the statute and they do it, it would be constitutional. But it sure as heck would go against the, the longstanding traditions yeah. of the of the Supreme Court and the House and Senate. And those mean something. I mean, obviously, if, even if tradition isn't binding, it means something. And to go against tradition, you usually need a pretty good justification for it. And they, they don't. It's just power. And court packing would also give one side of the culture war uh, uh, a, a bit more supremacy or uh, actually a heavy hand of supremacy. Yeah, yeah. It would be, uh, it would, it would, things would flame up really quickly if, if the Dems were to do that. But, uh, yeah, so a West Coast Hotel versus Parrish, they sided with Roosevelt, and they overruled Lochner. In Parrish, the court held that the 14th Amendment protects liberty, which freedom of contract is a part of. But they say that freedom of contract is a qualified, not an absolute right. And so this ties into Holmes and Harlan who you mentioned before in their dissents in Lochner, right? Just uh, 32 years later, their dissents became the majority in Parrish, and they said that freedom of contract is qualified. It's not absolute, right? So forget the Declaration of Independence. You know, forget consent of the governed. You know, just forget all that. You know, we're not going to support freedom of contract as an absolute right anymore. They said that uh, due process here in the restriction of uh, freedom of contract 
Uh, due process is regulations reasonable in relation to its subject and is adopted in the interest of the community. So you see here, this, this, this ties into the, the, uh, the test I, I mentioned before, where, where the, the strong two-part Lochner test. Here, they're weakening that test, and they say that the regulations just have to be reasonable in relation to its subject matter doesn't have to prove that what they're doing is actually efficacious. It just has to be reasonable, right? This amorphous, reasonable term. And this is what, you know, they're basically getting to the point where they don't have to prove anything. All you have to prove is that it's reasonably related. Well, I mean, there are lots of things that you could prove are reasonably related, but it's not actually going to do the things you want it to do. I mean, you know, it's like if you take some medication, it might be reasonably related to some illness you have, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it's actually curing it or doing what you want it to do. And so this is just a big blank check that the court is giving to violate our fundamental rights instead of instead of protecting them, which is what they're supposed to do. And uh, this shift of not needing to prove anything on the part of the government and the legislature to prove that their law is not unconstitutional in effect, this sunk into the court's jurisprudence. So even though it was an overturning of Lochner, this idea, the loosening of, of standards that are applied to economic regulations by the states under the 14th Amendment, that set a tone and kind of transplanted over into the Commerce Clause, where now we're going to loosen the standards that Congress has to meet in order to justify its economic regulations under the Constitution. And as I said before, even strict scrutiny, the toughest burden for the government, uh, for, for laws that, impede, that impinge speech, religion, make distinctions based on race, right? The strict scrutiny test is not as strong as the Lochner test. So even the strongest test that we have now doesn't reach to the point of Lochner. So even when the court is being as strong as it is now against certain things, it's not as strong as it once was, which I think is uh, I think is a, a, a terrible uh, a terrible change. Yeah. So I mean, like from what you just said like in my head i mean it sounds like uh what what was this case called again west coast hotel company versus parish 1937 it sounds like this set up the playing field for what um you know our grandparents have lived through and seen our parents have lived through and seen and what we're living through and seeing right now at least uh put in place the domino effect which caused all that we deal with in these culture wars and um something really important i want to i just point out for our listeners is you know us on the right wing libertarian side i mean i don't know if you would consider yourself right wing i don't even think that really matters but um so the important thing to keep in mind when we are discussing these culture wars um whether it's in america or uh in somewhere like europe we, we need to really take into account the laws 
that uh, surround these culture wars and how these laws may inflame, induce, or just add on to the what's going on. And uh, the, that's not it's not considered enough, I don't think, by people in our own circles, uh, which like again, the right wing libertarian, you know, Mises Institute type liberty lover circles. I just don't think a law or these kind of legal cases are considered enough. Because if you told most people, like if we asked most people, well, where do you think these culture wars stem out of from? They'll give us a long answer about the history of this and that. And, you know, whenever these people came into America and they got these positions, when really I think a lot of it is just to be seen in what you're talking about, which is the Supreme Court cases and how they folded out and how they the impacts they've had, the consequences they've had. I think just that history alone says so much about where America is today and why we're there today. Uh, so I think, you know, if you really want to, if you really want to learn more about the culture wars and get an idea of uh, just why America is where it is today, do it, do what Dave is doing and just study all these cases. Cause that's kind of what I've picked up on since doing this podcast and talking to him is that, there's a lot to just be known from our own history of our own courts. You know what? I'm really, really glad you brought up this point because this is something that I've kind of been worried about because, you know, we want to get a listener base of people who are libertarians or, you know, at least liberty minded, you know. And, you know, I'm not necessarily making this podcast hoping necessarily to uh, change people's minds to liberty because I don't expect a lot of the people listening to us will be non-libertarians. But I think the main thing I want to focus on is to teach libertarians about these issues, the history of, of, the, of the legal issues of the United States and other kind of things. I think that's really important just for the reason you gave. You know, We have to understand how we got to where we are in order to move forward best. And also, you know, just understanding the history of law helps us to know what law is you know, what law isn't, what was good and bad about the past and how we how we go forward. And so I think that, you know, for some of our anarchist listeners, uh, you know, they might be like, why are these guys talking about the Constitution so much? They don't they have 11 episodes and four of them are on the Constitution. It's like, what do we care? It's like, well, you should care because, first of all, this affects your life. Second of all, this is the legal system that's going to be the basis of the next legal system. So there's going to be some changes, some similarities. You have to understand that. And also, you know, it's it's just uh like you said, these are important issues that show how we how we came to where we are, and it teaches us about economics, it teaches about history, about human nature. And so I think that, you know, for some people who might be like, man, I'm not interested in the Constitution or all this stuff, it's like, well, I think you should be, even if you're an anarchist, even if you don't agree with it like you and I, you know, we, we don't agree with it, we don't want it, we don't want any of that crap, you know, we want a market legal system. But, you know, like you said, there's very, very much value to learn from understanding this history, to learn from understanding these legal ideas. Um, and that helps us to not understand liberty better in the abstract, but also helps us to practically know what we have to do moving forward in order to achieve liberty in the future. Um, so uh, that's why we're that's why we've spent so much time on the Constitution in our early episodes, because this is really foundational stuff, not only to law, but also to uh, to strategy. And we're going to spend a lot more time on the Constitution in, in due time. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, yeah, so we've been talking about this, this, this standard of review that the courts are going to apply to economic regulations. 
and how in uh, West Coast Hotel versus Parish, the court was reducing the standard of review because they're saying that freedom of contract is not an absolute right, it's a qualified right, so the standard of review is reduced because it's not as important in the court's eyes. The court ended up taking this reduction of the standard of review of economic regulations, they applied it to the Commerce Clause, and in a case which was ruled one year after, one year after Parrish, right? So you can see, even though Parrish was a 14th Amendment case, just one year after it was ruled, this Commerce Clause case comes down, and they reduce the standard of review in line with how they did in Parrish. And this case was from 1938 called the United States versus Caroline Products. In this case, the United States Congress passed a law which restricted the interstate uh, commerce uh, and sale of milk substitutes. And in this case, the court said that we are going to apply the rational basis test for Commerce Clause regulations by Congress. What is the rational basis test? Again, it's a two-part test like we've been talking about. And here's the rational basis test in its first two, in its two parts. First, the court imagines a legitimate legislative end when the actual end is not stated or supported by Congress, right? So the first part is there has to be a legitimate government purpose to the regulation, right? But under the rational basis review, the court does not have to rely on what the government says its legitimate purpose is. The court can imagine a legitimate purpose that this law would affect. And if the court can imagine a legitimate purpose out of thin air, they'll say that that is enough to meet the first part of the test, right? And then secondly, they'll say that the actual means must uh, reasonably further these ends, which again, you know, was just a much lower standard than actually have to prove that that it that it actually isn't in effect doing what you want it to do. But we see this rational basis, this serious reduction in the standard that the court is going to hold the government to when it makes economic regulations. So, so what that kind of reminds me of when you, you talk about uh, they can just imagine something and. And then push it towards that. I, it reminds me of Dick Cheney and the whole pulling any kind of whatever info they could find to justify going to war and launching this war on terrorism. It, that literally is what that reminded me of. Um, but it seems like this is something that governments have done throughout time. It seems like especially our government. Uh, with whatever they are trying to do. Um, in this case, you know, legislate against us or, or just overturn uh, overturn uh, our rights. But in other cases, like I just said, going to war or uh, invading on our privacy, another right they've overturned basically with their laws that they've ruled constitutional. So... Uh, that just says a lot to me that they gave themselves the authority to imagine something and then rule upon that. Yeah, very, very dangerous. It's it's despicable, and I mean, it's just like it's the opposite of what courts are supposed to do. Like we said before, courts are supposed to rule of actual parties before them in a case, the actual positions of the parties, 
And a lot of the times in cases, courts will say, well, a, a, a party didn't make an argument and therefore we're not going to consider that argument even if it's correct because they didn't argue it. So if the government doesn't argue for some purpose, I don't understand how the court can just pull it out of thin air and, and say that it's fine. But, you know, like we've said, this is just the abdication of the court, the the success of progressivism. And, and uh, yeah, so it, it's just we see the... Uh, the political elite's contempt for for uh, the citizens' economic freedoms, uh, which is the first and truest freedom. And we can prove that as being the first and truest freedom at the basis of any conception of law. So it's really just, uh, it, it's horrible what, what's happened. So by 1937, 1938, Lochner was dead. The distinction between economic and non-economic rights was set in stone in the court's jurisprudence. And the court sold its soul to the politicians, uh, along with every American's foundational economic freedoms. And it's really sad. Um, this is why we saw the shift from Hammer to Darby, two of the cases we talked about in our last episode about manufacturing and production not being subject to the Commerce Clause. Uh, Hammer and Darby, uh, we saw that shift where they said that uh, manufacturing and production is subject to the Commerce Clause. And this occurred after uh, after uh, Lochner's overrule. Yeah, so uh, Darby was ruled in 1941. So yeah, we see that, uh, and Hammer was from 1918. So yeah, it's after this overruling of Lochner that we see Darby overruling Hammer. Uh, and, uh, and economic freedoms were relegated to the lowest status of constitutional freedoms with the least stringent test, the rational basis test allowing the nanny state to take control of our lives and oust the peaceful market solutions uh, uh, to the resolution of society's material and cultural uh, problems and things that we need to do. It, it's very sad. And to add insult to injury, in 1942, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Wickard versus Filburn. And it was in this case where the court held that the Commerce Clause extends to abstentions from production for the market, for example, self-sufficient production, because if such abstention were aggregated, then it would have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. So, right, we talked about before, the substantial effects test. Something has a substantial effect on interstate commerce and the Congress can, led, can regulate it under the Commerce Clause. In Wickard versus Filborn, there was a farmer who was growing wheat on his own farm for his own consumption, for his family and his livestock. He had no intention to sell the wheat in the market. He had no intention of doing anything like that. He never did. But there was a quota placed on the amount of wheat that farmers could grow during uh, because of New Deal legislation. And so the court basically said that because this farmer was growing wheat for himself. That was wheat that he did not purchase from the market. And therefore, if we were to take the entire amount of people in his position who are doing the same thing, self-sufficient wheat production, if we aggregate all those other people together, then all of the wheat that they're not buying in the market aggregated on top of each other 
that reaches the point of a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And again, like what we're, uh, like I said before, they're just imagining this aggregation. They don't have to know how many people are actually doing this. They don't have to know how much is actually going on, right? They just say, well, okay, there's one guy. We're just going to assume that there's other people doing the same thing. If we aggregate it, it'd be a substantial effect. Therefore, we're going to allow it to happen. I mean, what are they doing? This is not this is not law. This is not evidence. This is not proof. This is not doing justice in a case. What are you doing? Imagine if me or you tried to do that same thing. Imagine something to justify whatever we're doing that goes against government. Imagine if me and you used that. We would be locked up yep. and uh, probably uh, receive the top of the capital punishment. Uh, well... Imagine there's no Fed. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I got one question I do want to ask you before we wrap up. Um, And um, I I thought about it while you were talking, and I kind of came to my own conclusion, but I kind of want to have a tiny little discussion on this. So what do you think was worse? What do you think had uh, the more dire consequences for the free market and for America, Americans in general? The Commerce Clause or Lochner? Because in my mind, Lochner is worse because at least with the Commerce Clause, if you stay in one state, that's not going to affect you. And if all the product and whatever you're trading you use, it's all from that one state, it won't affect you. However, Lochner can affect you no matter where you are, no matter what kind of measures you take. So my question to you is, which one do you think is worse and why? It's a tough question. Uh... Well, as we said before, the, the, the Commerce Clause was being greatly expanded even before Lochner. Uh, so I think that the Commerce Clause itself had some problems. And it, and it was a centralized, it was a centralizing clause, as we've talked about. So that wasn't necessarily the best thing, although there were understandable reasons for it at the time you know, with the tariffs and stuff that the states were erecting. But... Uh, I think that ultimately, it's hard to say which. I think the Commerce Clause was was like the gas-doused tinder. And I think that the overruling of Lochner was the spark that blew it. So I think it's hard to compare the two because I think they're playing equally devious but different roles in this whole thing. So I kind of see the overruling of Lochner as more of a catalyst to the to the growing commerce power that had already been being laid down. So kind of playing into each other. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I guess after you put it that way, I can definitely see what you mean there. Yeah, yeah. So I just have a few more points that I want to get to uh, very quickly, um, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, I just want to say that, yeah, I mean, we can see how uh, how the courts have sold us out to politics have allowed things to be in the realm of politics, which we're not supposed to be. And uh, we can see how the court has diminished our liberty by using substantive due process doctrine in the name of liberty to undercut our liberty in the market, our live and let live liberty, changing the focus of our rights from the market to politics, which is, of course, you know, basically moving our rights from peaceful association and problem solving to to violence, which politics is. It's just violence in a, in a fresh coat of paint and a nice three-piece suit. So uh, I'll just make a point to say that um, 
the civil rights legislation, which has occurred in recent years uh, over the past, you know, uh, uh, 60 years, 70 years or so, uh, these were based on the Commerce Clause, right? So the Commerce Clause, interstate commerce, was the justification for taking away the uh, freedom of association of, of people. And, and I will say that, you know, there were... There was common law doctrine of public accommodations uh, even before the Civil Rights Acts, and the Civil Rights Acts were kind of legislative updates to these to these public accommodation laws. So I don't want to get too much into the civil rights stuff because there's more than just saying that the civil rights laws took away the freedom of association. It, you know, there's more to it than just that. But ultimately, I, you know, for our purposes here, you know, I just wanted to point out that these, you know, our freedom of association has been curtailed under the Commerce Clause. Um, and part of that, um, part of the growth of the Commerce Clause to allow these different kind of civil rights legislations to be put in place under it was because of Lochner and the reduced standards, uh, because of the overturn of Lochner and the reduced standards that followed, followed that. So the two main cases for the civil rights legislation being under the Commerce Clause was the uh, Heart of Atlanta Motel and, and Katzenbach versus McClung, which were both the both cases from 1964. But we should end on a happy note because it does appear that the Commerce Clause may have reached its limits, at least as far as the court is going to allow it to go. This was a case from the 90s, 1995, which I mentioned in our last episode, United States versus Lopez. And in this case, yeah, whenever that boy brought the gun into the school, right, exactly. So this, so the Congress passed a law which said that you couldn't have a firearm. I think it was in like a thousand feet of a school zone or something like that. And this applied to this applied to all uh, public schools, all state public schools, right? So the question is, is this a legitimate exercise of of the commerce? clause power and the government argued as i mentioned in our last case that because it, we can regulate possession of firearms at school because if firearms are at school then it's a less good learning environment and it's more dangerous people are on edge the children have anxiety they don't learn as much they don't learn as much they don't become as productive citizens if they don't become as productive citizens that's a negative substantial effect on interstate commerce and therefore we can regulate guns in schools and the court said, get out of here. Get out of here. But yes, it was a Rehnquist decision. And uh, they basically said that Commerce Clause regulations, to be sustained, they must be, they're, they're, the substantial effect on interstate commerce must be economic in nature. Right? And so they're basically saying the substantial effects test applies but the substantial effect has to be an economic, a substantial economic effect, right? So one of the arguments that the court gave, if I'm remembering correctly in the case, they said, well, look at laws against uh, uh, battering women or something, you know, some legislation to protect the uh, women from being domestically abused or whatever. I mean, you could argue that, you know, if women are battered more than, you know, they they're not as happy. They don't uh, go out and uh, to the market as much or whatever. You know what I mean? And so you could argue that justify the commerce power that uh, under the same argument that the government was making in Lopez. But what they basically said was that like 
it's not an economic issue. I mean, a domestic abuse situation is not an economic issue. So even if it might tangentially affect economics, it's not totally uh, that kind of a thing. Now, I will say, we need to be clear with our terms, because for me, being an Austrian economist, all human action is economic. So, like, even if you were to batter your wife, I mean, in the strictest sense of the term, that's economic because it's human action. And economic is, you know, that's what, what's going on there. But... You know, that's not what they're talking about in the case. What they're talking about in the case is markets, right? It's buying and selling, going to the store, you know, production of things. That's what they're not talking about domestic relations, right? So even though in the strict sense, every all action is economic, um, you know, this the economic, the term they're using here, they just mean, you know, markets, the kind of more uh, standard, more mainstream understanding of the term economic. So I just want to make that clear. But, I mean, I think this was very good. We're starting to see that finally the Commerce Clause is being restricted to what it was supposed to be about, which was supposed to be about, you know, commercial things, right? So uh, I think that's very important and, and a good ruling. And then in 2012, in the Obamacare case, uh, the Chief Justice Roberts, in the majority opinion, ruled that the Commerce Clause could not justify the individual mandate because the subject of Commerce Clause regulations must precede the regulation. So by that, he meant that Congress cannot compel individuals to buy things or otherwise engage in commerce in ways they had not before been engaged in. So that basically just means that in Sibelius, they said that you can't force people to buy health care or put a penalty on them for doing so because you are, at that point, you're regulating inactivity. You're regulating something that's not existing, and what doesn't exist is people's purchasing of health care, right? And so, again, they limited the Commerce Clause power and said that you cannot force people to buy things you cannot compel people to engage in market activity that they were not engaged in before under the Commerce Clause. And so these two cases seem to be finally reaching the end of the Commerce Clause uh, uh, regulatory authority. And I think that this is a very high, happy uh, kind of development, but uh, ultimately too little too late, I think. Yeah, yeah. I just I want to get some final thoughts on you and everything I've said, and then I'll just leave the listeners with a final question and a final a final quote by Kinsella, which I didn't get to about substantive due process because we've been talking about it a lot. May talk about it more, but I kind of want to just lay out his uh, thing that he wrote, and we can end the episode on that. So, uh, final thoughts on on all of this. I guess these are my thoughts every week when we end these uh, recordings, but um, it's crazy how much. I don't even know whenever I feel like I'm a expert on some of these things in American history, like whenever the free market uh, was pretty much completely murdered. I thought I knew a lot about that, um, but apparently not enough because what you told me today, it spelled out a lot in my mind and it made a lot make sense. Um, so I'm going to have to do a lot more research on Lochner myself. Um, Really interested in, I kind of want to look into more the <laughs> Lochner as compared to 
the Commerce Clause, but I think I'm more interested actually is if Lochner had been kept, if it hadn't been overturned, would we have a Federal Reserve? Would there be a monopoly on our money? Because that's something very interesting to me. So that's something I'm going to look into myself. I mean, other than that, I mean, I really don't have any comments per se because everything you say, either I'm learning from you or I pretty much already agree with. Um, I did have one thing I wanted to say before we wrapped everything up, but how about you get everything out about the, you know, what we talked about this episode before. Sure, sure. Well, I just I just want to ask uh, our listeners to take some time to think about uh, the issue of judicial restraint, because this is something that we've been bringing up. You know, what's the rule of, of a common law judge? What's the rule of a federal judge? What, what's the role of, of, of policy? What's the what's the role of, you know, all this stuff? Who makes what decisions? How do we figure these things out? What's the proper role of all this stuff? And, you know, with judicial restraint, uh, do we think it's good? You know, do we think it's bad? You know, it's just interesting of whether or not the court is abdicating its role to protect rights or whether or not it's protecting people's rights by allowing these issues of policy to uh, be borne out in the political process. I mean, I definitely don't agree with that latter view, but I mean, I definitely see the arguments on all sides. Um, So it's just an interesting issue that goes into all of this of, you know, what are courts supposed to do? What, how are we supposed to rule on these cases? What's the what's the method? How much restraint? How much deference do we have to give to the policymakers? It's all very interesting stuff. Um, so that's just the final question that I'll leave our listeners with after this kind of long foray, foray that we've gone through the uh, Commerce Clause and and uh, and Lochner. And the last thing that I want to read um, is a a quote from Kinsella. And it's fairly lengthy, actually. Um, so if you have any final thoughts, anything you'd like to say before we go, um, throw those out, and then I'll just end the episode with this quote and then and then end it there. Yeah, so, guys, I just, um, I, you know, I want to be human for a minute. And uh, the holidays are coming up, and it's been a really hard year for a lot of people because of the government forced lockdowns and you know we all know how that's affected so many people and with the you know holidays coming up it's really important to a lot of people religious or non-religious so uh, I think it'd be really great if uh, you know as libertarians we donated maybe a can to a soup kitchen here and there or gave money to a homeless person a dollar or two there whenever we saw them because I think right now 2020 has been a terrible year uh, people could really use uh, some good, kind-hearted voluntarism in their lives. And we could also go out there and show people what liberty can achieve and what voluntarism can achieve. So uh, I just kind of want to put that into people's heads that, you know, be on the lookout, do what you can do to make everything better, especially, I mean, all the time, but especially with these holidays coming up. And I hope everyone has good holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, all that good stuff. And uh, just, you know, always be a good person. I agree. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And it's, uh, yeah, I think that is something. You know, it's it, hard times allow the, the, I really do think that hard times allow for the best opportunities for human nature to show its good side. It also, you know, has an opportunity for human nature to show its bad side. That's absolutely the truth. But, you know, when we're put up against hard times, you know, that's a chance for us to show you know, our hearts and our minds 
and that they're in the right place and that, you know, liberty and voluntary, voluntary charity, that's the way to go. And we can do more to help people in their lives than any government welfare check would do. All right. Well, I guess I'll just say before I read the quote, I'll just say uh, thank you for listening. And uh, I'll put all of our Twitter handles in the description. I'll put our Discord link in the description. Please join. And uh, with that, um, thank you, everybody, for listening. And I just have a quote from Mr. Stephen Kinsella. And uh, he wrote um, kind of a takedown of substantive due process uh, as an entire concept. And as I've said before, you know, I'm still thinking about substantive due process. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, Barnett agreed with the outcome of Lochner, even though he thought it should have been a, uh, a uh, privileges and immunities case rather than a... Uh, uh, due process clause case, uh, but nevertheless, I think it's uh, it's interesting uh, these issues. And uh, Kinsella basically did a huge uh, smackdown in his heavyweight fashion of the uh, of the substantive due process. So I just want to read that for you all, and then uh, and then let you go on your way. So he says, "quote The Supreme Court has held that the Fourteenth Amendment's due process clause is so broad as to incorporate the fundamental rights of the first eight amendments of the Bill of Rights." Yet consider, the Constitution, ratified in 1788 and adopted in 1789, had no Bill of Rights. The very structure of the Constitution itself, that is, in enumerating only limited powers that the government had, was the means chosen to prevent the new federal government from violating individual rights. There was no First Amendment to protect free speech rights, since the Congress was simply not even granted power to regulate speech, except for copyright law, perhaps, which was later repealed by the First Amendment. There was no Second Amendment to protect gun rights since gun rights were protected from federal interference or infringement simply by the fact that Congress was not empowered to legislate in that area. However, some anti-federalists feared the Fed's right the, the Feds might find excuses anyway to violate citizens' rights and evade the turf left to the states. So they added the Bill of Rights simply to emphasize things that the federal government could not do. Thus, the First Amendment states that Congress shall make no laws violating religious or speech liberties or freedom of the press. It did not limit states at all. In fact, some states at that time had official state religions, for, exam for example, Congregationalism in Massachusetts. One of those limits was the due process rights of citizens in the Fifth Amendment. Congress could not violate due process rights of citizens. All these limits on the feds are redundant with the limited powers scheme. The listing of rights here was not meant to be exhaustive, as the Ninth Amendment clarifies, and they were not limits on state power, as the Tenth Amendment makes clear by reiterating the enumerated powers scheme inherent in the design of the compact. Therefore, the Fourteenth Amendment, enacted after the Civil War, did purport to limit states in three ways, equal protection, due process, and privileges or immunities of citizens. Later decisions by the Supreme Court have interpreted two of these broadly and one of them narrowly. The slaughterhouse cases in the 1800s said the Privileges and Immunities Clause is only a narrow set of rights, so it only limits a few types of state laws. Yet now libertarians argue this was meant broadly. The later courts desired to limit state laws they disliked and could not say they were violations of the Privileges and Immunities Clause because, the slaughterhouse cases, so, uh, because of slaughterhouse. 
So they instead made up the doctrine that the due process law is not only about process, despite its name, but that it covers not only procedural due process, but also substantive due process, which includes fundamental rights enumerated elsewhere in the Bill of Rights, a blatant violation of the Ninth Amendment's command not to construe the enumeration of rights as to deny others not enumerated, such as First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, Eighth Amendment rights, etc., and in recent years, even the Second Amendment in the Heller case. Later courts also interpreted the Equal Protection Clause broadly, for example, in the gay marriage decision uh, and others. Yet, if equal protection was meant to be, a, uh, to be such a broad limitation of state laws, why did we need subsequent amendments to give blacks and women the right to vote? Why were the 15th and 19th Amendments even necessary, giving black men and then women the right to vote? Why wasn't the Equal Protections Clause sufficient to grant women and blacks the rights to vote? After all, wouldn't it, de wouldn't it deny equal protection of the laws to deny blacks and women the right to vote? So evidently, it was not that broad, was it? As an aside, I'll note that it's curious that while the states are prohibited from violating the privileges and immunities of citizens, whatever this means, the Constitution does not impose a similar prohibition on the federal government itself. Why not? In any case... The point is that the Bill of Rights was meant to simply emphasize the limitations on federal power already implied by the enumerated powers structure of the Constitution. They can be called rights, but they are just the implication or the flip side of the fact that the feds had no authority to violate these rights in the first place. The same, however, is not true of states which, like other states in the world, have plenary or general police power and legislative power. New York, as a sovereign state, has general power to outlaw murder, for example. Thus, a Bill of Rights or limits on state power is essential and makes sense. Thus, most state constitutions have their own mini bill of, Bills of Rights. There are not just, uh, these are not just restatements of limited enumerated powers of the states, since their powers are, in fact, not limited, not limited and enumerated. They are plenary. But by contrast, the federal government may not enact a general law outlawing murder, since there is no enumerated power to do this. There is no amendment saying Congress shall have no power to enact laws about murder, because it was not necessary to explicitly state this. But if it had been, this would also be part of the Bill of Rights, just as the Tenth Amendment is. The point is, to turn around and incorporate into the Due Process Clause the fundamental rights in the Bill of Rights makes no sense, since these rights merely reflect the enumerated powers held by the feds. This is why the Ninth Amendment makes clear this listings of rights is not exhaustive. Consider, suppose in 1791 the Bill of Rights had not been added to the Constitution since people thought a Bill of Rights was not necessary, as the Federalists argued, because the federal government simply wasn't authorized to violate free speech rights, religious liberty, gun rights, and so on. Then, after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment, which would now be the Fourth, was ratified. How could, the, how could later courts, with a straight face, argue that the Due Process Clause somehow incorporated fundamental rights elsewhere in the Constitution? It makes no sense. The rights in the Bill of Rights are not comprehensive or exhaustive. They are just limitations on federal power. So how can they be applied to the states? Why not apply the Tenth Amendment to the states, too, and take away their ability to outlaw murder? Or, contrarywise... If the Due Process Clause incorporates fundamental rights, then it can't be limited to rights in Amendments 1 through 8, since the Ninth Amendment says that you can't do this. And finally, of course, there is a Due Process Clause in the Fifth Amendment. If the Due Process Clause in the Fourteenth Amendment is meant 
to incorporate fundamental rights in the Bill of Rights, what about the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment? That's evidently also a fundamental right. So what is it supposed to do? Incorporate a nearly identical earlier version of itself? What's that do? Double its strength? The whole theory of selective incorporation and substantive due process is total bullshit. Likewise, some centralist libertarians argue that instead of the due process clause, the 14th Amendment's privileges and immunities clause should instead be construed as a broad grant of natural rights of citizens and the individual states may not violate. And yet, then again, why is there a due process clause also in the 14th Amendment if the privileges and immunities clause is broad enough to incorporate fundamental rights? Wouldn't a broad privileges and immunities clause be sufficient to cover due process rights already? So why is there a due process clause? Obviously, because the privileges and immunities clause was meant to cover a narrow range of rights as slaughterhouse cases conclude. And thus, to make sure states could not violate due process rights of the newly freed slaves, they had to list it since it was not implied in the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Thus, the Privileges and Immunities Clause was not meant to be broad. So libertarian centralists are just wrong. I think that's an argument against uh, Barnett's view there. So, uh, yeah. So for me, that was one of the best takedowns of substantive due process I have yet seen. And it's, uh, it's a very interesting argument and I think something for people to think about. I want to thank everybody for listening and we will see you all next time.